This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. While our team of tax pros are well-versed in all things tax, our areas of expertise include rental real estate and equity compensation. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. At Capital Area Tax Consultants, we believe in pricing transparency and flat fees. Before engaging with us, you'll receive an upfront quote in black and white with a description of any services to be performed. This way, there are no hidden surprises. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com. Welcome to the Tech Money Podcast, where the worlds of technology and personal finance collide. Hosted by certified financial planner, speaker, blogger, and self-proclaimed personal finance nerd, Malcolm Etheridge. Each episode aims to make you just a little bit smarter about your money, all from the perspective of the tech professional. Without further delay, here's your host. Hey there listeners, Malcolm here. And on today's show, we're talking about the gender pay gap. More specifically, we're talking about the disparities between men and women in the workforce and the ways that they both ask for and receive equity compensation. Recently, the Wall Street Journal released an article titled, There's Another Gender Pay Gap, Stock Options. And in it, they make the case that when it comes to equity compensation, women often don't know what to ask for and companies don't tell them. They cited a study by Rutgers Institute for the study of employee ownership and profit sharing that showed a substantial gap in the percentage of men and women who own their employer stock, as well as the overall value of those shares. According to the study, some 24% of male employees hold company stock or stock options compared with just 17% of female employees. And when it comes to the value of employee shares, including those held by workers who participate in a federally regulated employee stock ownership plan, the average value of company shares held by male employees in 2018 was $104,902. For women, it was a dismal $26,361. A different study published this year in the Journal of Applied Psychology looked at two anonymous companies, one a tech startup, the other a large publicly traded company, and found that women received 15 to 30% fewer equity grants than men. The gap remained even after the researchers accounted for traditionally gender-based nuances in skill sets and occupations. After, re- after reading this article, twice actually, it became apparent to me that I missed a key component in our five-part series on equity comp that stretched between episodes 17 through 21 of this podcast. As a person who lives in this world, advising clients on equity comp and salary negotiations and such, I was not aware that so much of a gap existed with respect to equity alone. But I should also say that I was not all I was not all that surprised. So I decided to double back for this episode and dedicate an entire show to equity compensation in season one, not only on the gender disparity and equity ownership, but also on negotiating for more equity when presented with the opportunity. And rather than get on here and try to mansplain the entire article and the various issues it addresses to you myself, I thought it would be a better idea to bring on the woman who the article profiled and let her share her story herself and probably educate me a bit in the process. 
Brooke Harley is the founder and CEO of Class Rebel, an online e-learning company that offers classes focused on wealth building, angel investing, and the basics of managing equity. She also has an MBA in finance and earned a JD from York University. And prior to funding Class Rebel, Brooke has worked in a as a corporate attorney, as well as a venture investor and startup board member. So with that brief introduction, welcome Brooke Harley to the Tech Money Podcast. Thanks so much, Malcolm, for having me. It's so great to be here and I love talking about these topics. So thanks very much for letting me have the floor on it. Yeah, no, I appreciate you uh, agreeing to do this. So to get us kicked off here, I breeze through your resume pretty quickly in my intro. What should I have included in there? Well, for any aviation enthusiasts out there, I'm also actually trained as a as a pilot, which is just a personal interest of mine. Um, and uh, it was harder than I thought to learn that. Yeah, yeah. You never, you what never an know who's out there. I who must be. <laughs> you never know who's out there who has a license, actually, and it's a whole nother world, and it, and it's interesting. So sometimes I like to add that because it's um, unusual. But you never know who's out there listening and. Uh, and, you know, it's a fascinating area, aviation. So I want to add that. I, you know, I used to want to be a pilot. And then uh, the more I fly and, and I've also uh, somewhat recently flown on smaller planes and like it occurred to me like this is not for me. Like I don't need to be <laughs> able to see out of the windshield of this vessel because my nerves <laughs> yeah. just. Yeah. So I, I could quickly cross that one off my uh, my list, but I certainly have a respect for folks that do it. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely not for everybody. But um, yeah, it's a fascinating viewpoint of the world. And it's an interesting skill set that's, I think, maybe harder than most people realize. But yeah. Yeah. Well, also, as I mentioned in my intro there, you spent a few years working as a corporate attorney, uh, developing stock option plans for companies and, you know, also helping to facilitate some mergers and acquisitions uh, with the investment yeah. banking team, which means you're no stranger to the inner workings of equity compensation, sort of as you were alluding to, but not you're not a stranger to negotiation either. Right. I believe you come from a family full of lawyers, if my research is correct. Oh, wow. That's true. My dad's a lawyer. My twin brother is a lawyer. Um, and, you know, I, 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 law runs in my family. Um, and I knew where it would go. And that was part of my decision to leave my love affair with the law and mm -hmm. get my MBA and get out there into the corporate world and eventually founding things. And um, there's a lot of serendipity that comes with using the skill sets that I developed in law and applying them out there in the world to create things. But you know, I don't know if you've ever traced back pivotal points in your life mm -hmm. and how they happened. Oh, that's my but favorite I will thing say, yeah, I will say <laughs> that that negotiation at Lululemon was a pivotal point in my life that created a future that I didn't have before. And when I trace back how I did that negotiation, it's, you know, I worked for this lawyer. His name was Hector Mackay Dunn. And I had to draft the stock option plan. I didn't know anything about it for this company. And, and this old partner was so stodgy. He would swear at me. And it was just a horrible assignment. I, I yeah. got a few things wrong. But it's it was the training ground for understanding stock options. And I used to draft them for a living. So by the time it came around that I was in front of the CFO to negotiate my package, I knew I had all the confidence I needed to talk about an equity compensation package. And so... It's funny how when you trace things back, like pivotal, pivotal moments of training or pivotal opportunities. How much of a factor, though, would you say that your professional background has played in your approach to equity negotiations and how much of it is just personality? 
right? I brought up the fact that your your dad I knew was an attorney, and then you mentioned your twin brother as well. Like you're you're kind of exposed to that world vicariously, right? So mm-hmm. even if you decided not to become an attorney, so how much do you think uh, your your personality and your your upbringing and that sort of thing is is the reason for your approach versus uh, what you've learned on the job or you know professional training. I think it's 90% professional yeah. training. Um, you have to know what you're talking about when you go to negotiate an equity compensation package. You need to know mm-hmm. the mechanics of a stock option plan to have an intelligent, persuasive negotiation. And so I think 90% of it was training and having the confidence and experience to have the discussion. And maybe 10% is personality and trying to have courage to ask for big things. So we're going to get to uh, the story you were alluding to in a second. I, I, I definitely want to focus a good bit on uh, your you know, negotiation that sort of changed the course of your life, as it, w- as it were. Um, but uh, in my intro, I mentioned that you spent some time as a venture investor as well. But yeah. that may have been underselling it just a little bit. Um, I read that you guys actually managed to raise over $32 million for your fund, um, Campfire Capital. And that's, you know, that's no small feat. What was that like? It was really difficult. Um, I left Lululemon and I had this big vision that I would start this fund and I started it by myself, but I quickly added some partners from the private equity industry and from Mm -hmm. the retail industry, one of whom was my old boss. And um, Hmm. there was really two of us who were day to day. We were young women at the time, mid, mid, mid thirties. So this is about five years ago. And it was very difficult. I'll give you the real numbers. We had about 900 no's, Hmm. 100 yeses. And it took about two years to close that money. And there was a lot of disappointments, a lot of people that promise you a million dollars and, you know, disappear on the yeah. same day of the closing. And many days I laid in bed thinking, what on earth? Why did I think that I could do this? Why did I think we could do it? Um, but if you, what I found is the value of persistence if you just refuse to give up. Um, it's amazing huh. what you can make happen if you just refuse to give up and hang in there for a very long time. And we brought it into fruition. And we did it. And it surprised even me, but it was 900 no's and 100 yeses. That's really wow. how it shook out. Same pitch 1,000 times. Uh, no, thank you. <laughs> I, uh, and can you, the, well, can you uh, imagine? I can the same actually, thing 1,000 times. <laughs> yeah. I, I absolutely can. Before I got into financial services coming out of, well, while I was in college and then also uh, coming out of college, I actually worked in auto sales. And so, yes, I was very trained uh, at accepting the word no without taking it personally. But uh, I definitely don't think it's something that you ever become immune to. It, it still affects you to some degree. You just learn that uh, eventually it's them, not me. Um, and you move on to the next one and the next one, but it's, it can't be any easier to get geared up for number 899, uh, than it was to get geared up for number like 15. Um, but I mean, <laughs> even to that end, right. You apparently weren't tired of hearing no too much. Cause then you went and founded your own thing after putting in all that work in the venture space, you know, making all those contacts, learning the ropes, you know, having a process down. You said it took you about two years. So after two years, that J curve has started to uh, get a little less steep. But you decided to go do something completely different. Why bother? Right. Why not just sit back and chill and enjoy the 
the, the, the fruits of your labor on that side. Yeah, well, this is where I'm a little bit thankful that the press did not cover uh, the dark turn <laughs> that uh, my life took. Um, so after all that hard work, if you can imagine, um, there was a part once we closed 32 million, there was a partnership dispute. And the way of fund the corporate plumbing of a fund is structured is that a partner can trigger the key man provisions and bring the thing down in a day. Mm. Wow. And that's what happened. There had been some tension brewing in the partnership, you know, conflicts of interest, issues around economics and control. And they came to a head and a partner pulled the key man trigger and it all came down in a day. And honestly, it was devastating. It It's definitely, it was the darkest, darkest time in my life. And I can appreciate how maybe bougie that sounds. Oh, my VC fund imploded. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, it was about reputation. I'd gotten all my colleagues at Lululemon to believe in me and I'd taken their capital and I was a steward of their capital and they trusted me and we'd thankfully not gotten too far in deploying it. But I was in a position of of trust. I was an asset manager and value was destroyed through a partnership dispute. So it was devastating for me and... um, you know, it's been, f- I think, four or five years since then, and it's still painful. Yeah. I, well, I appreciate you sharing that with us, you know, as painful as I'm sure it, it can be to rip off that that scab one more time to tell the story. And the reason I say that is because, you know, well, it's twofold. One, a lot of times folks who are successful like to tell their story as if it's just a series of uh, win after win after win after win. And anybody who's ever lived life beyond like age 21 or 22 22 knows that like life is full of all these peaks and valleys and peaks and valleys and peaks and valleys and and it's never peak to peak to peak to peak and so i just appreciate you being willing to to share that right for that uh reason but then also you know those of us who don't work in the tech space and then also those who do work in the tech space specifically uh, are constantly chasing the headlines of this fund is race is is raising you know 50 million dollars this fund just raised another 100 million dollars this fund is raising x y and z and look how great they are look how smart they are and what have you and it's one headline after another and so people often get caught up in that uh and don't necessarily recognize that the part that doesn't get reported later is the dissolution that happened because there was a dispute among partners or the investigation that brought down the fund because there was some misdoing uh, happening, those kind of things. So I do appreciate you just sharing that from from that perspective to kind of insert some reality into the, the excitement and the hysteria. Yeah, I think once you leave the world of employment and you're out there building things mm-hmm. that become successful and attract value and money, I do believe you've entered the Wild West yeah. and it is more difficult to navigate. And certainly I look back and, and know that I made mistakes that were based on a lack of experience and that I won't repeat in new ventures. Yeah. But it was it did feel in my life like it was win to win to win to win until that happened. And, you know, I, I think if you're out there really shooting for the stars, you're 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 going to have some setbacks and that that was one yeah well if i understand correctly though sort of uh moving the story forward just a little bit uh, one of the main reasons that you built 
Class Rebel was that you noticed that startup founders who attended, you know, elite private U.S. colleges had a distinct advantage when it came to raising money for their venture. Right. Can you say a little bit about that? I'm sure you encountered plenty of it while you were uh, raising in that VC space. Yeah. And especially starting to review the companies, I, I certainly when we were deploying the capital, I certainly noticed anecdotally as I started to review a lot of prospective investments I started to, of course, look at the the backgrounds of the founders. And again and again and again, I noticed it was Harvard, Wharton, and Stanford. This was the most common educational background. And I didn't read any data yet on it. I just noticed it. And so there was a lot of early stage money primed and ready to back these founders with these particular educational profiles. Eventually, I did find the pitch book data that actually comes out every year that backed up my perception of what, of what the bias there was. Hmm. And it's an interesting bias, right? Because I don't think it's a well-kept secret that there's legacy admit programs into these schools. I think Harvard Mm -hmm. is fairly open about it. And legacy admit is a very kind way of saying your parents bought your spot. They went there. (laughs) they, they, They donated over the years to ensure their kid's spot. And so you have folks that come from wealth and connection and they're primed to go to these schools and then they're primed to get money. And I just think that people who come from more common backgrounds might understand uh, more mass problems and have more in common with the average person and can hmm. and solve the average person's problems. Um, that that's what I got curious about, and I so I recognize the bias in who was able to raise capital, who get who capital even gets risked on. Who was, who was risking their capital. And mm-hmm. so in the ashes of my fund, I, I created a course called Fundraising 101 uh, and then eventually Angels 101 um, with the goal to provide education that would imbue people with confidence to push against the biases that are out there. Um, so if you're confident you know how a venture deal works, perhaps then you'll go and pursue and pursue and pursue the money and not give up. But if you don't know how a venture capital deal works, then it's easy to give up because you tell yourself a story that you don't under- understand how it works. Mm, Do you know what that. I mean about education imbuing people with the ability to and, and, and endurance to push against bias? I don't think education solves inherent bias, but imbues people with confidence to push against it. Yeah, that's essentially the 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 overall uh thesis of why we created this podcast so i mean the goal is to close the information gap as we refer to it right so i personally as a financial planner live by the uh mantra that if people knew better they would do better i know that doesn't apply to literally everybody across the board but i choose to be an optimist and believe that the more people who have access to quality financial advice the more people there are out there making good decisions about their money and not listening to TikTok superstars and, and things like that. So I completely uh, agree with your point about, you know, once you are empowered with the information and you have a little bit more of an understanding of how to do things, you, you just move differently. You, you don't shy away from opportunities as they come um, because you actually know what to do with them uh, when they're presented to you. So I, I take your point. Well, you actually recognize an opportunity for what it is. Right. I think I only I only thought about the equity compensation going in to Lululemon because I'd spent years drafting stock option plans. So I knew it was there. I think a lot of really talented people entered that company not even asking. 
for equity yeah. compensation. They wouldn't even have thought of it. It sounds like, though, if I could go back to Class Rebel for one more second, it sounds like you guys focus is on like bringing down the barriers to entry that exist for folks like myself who attended a state school and may not have access to that same network of alumni who, you know, all went off to found PayPal, say, after attending Stanford together, for example. Right. Or mm -hmm. maybe they didn't even attend college at all, but, you know, they'd like the opportunity to level up their skill set and knowledge base like we're talking about. Do I have that right? You guys are sort of building up the, the underdog in a sense. The yes, the mission of Class Rebel is that we can make education a public good modern skill sets affordable to all and available to all that's our mission and we're starting off with two streams uh courses under side hustle so fundraising mm -hmm. 101 is under there building your million person movement is under there um under wealth we've started off with angels 101 but we'll have courses on cryptocurrency we'll have courses on value investing hmm. um and so on and so we've really started with the stream side hustle and wealth and that is a nod to the bigger cultural sentiment that I believe has been building for a while, which yeah. is in this hundred year life, which we're living, you can't be 100% reliant on an employer for your financial livelihood. It's too mm -hmm. risky. You've got to be starting things on the side. You've got to be investing your money because trading time for money with a, 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 an employer with no uh, with no loyalty to use is a dangerous place in this hundred year life. So that's why we are leading with side hustle and wealth courses to equip people to create money flows on the side, you know, uh, that, that complement their employment income. Yeah. And that could eventually, you know, if they do well, eclipse their employment income. That is eventually what you learn is that investment income will eclipse your employment income. Well, so to set the stage, right, one of the reasons that this particular article jumped out to me is uh, that a couple weeks ago, I was a part of a mastermind group of, you know, I don't know, 20 or so folks in in the tech space um, that I'm, I'm uh, a member of. And everybody's at varying levels of their tech career, right? And one young woman was telling us uh, about how she was up for a pretty significant promotion and she wasn't quite sure what to ask for, but she knew it was going to mean, you know, considerably more work and considerably more responsibility. Right. So she reached out to another member of this same group who's a bit more senior and asked him for his advice on what she should ask the company for. Right. In the way of uh, total comp. And the two of them went back and forth over multiple phone conversations where he coached her on, you know, the right email to craft what to say. And he convinced her basically that she needed to ask for double what she was initially thinking to ask for sort of to 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 one of the points um, that you were making. And she was super nervous, couldn't believe he was pushing her so far in the realm of what she thought had to be like borderline reckless right but she listened to him anyway took a deep breath and fired off the email to her you know with her demands and the short of it is the company came back and said yes to all uh of her requests with literally zero pushback so she was blown away mm -hmm. right then fast forward a couple mm -hmm. more days i'm doing my weekend reading and i come across this article in the journal about how much women who get paid an equity comp receive in comparison to their male counterparts and they're talking about this woman brooke who is like 
slayed these dragons and negotiated for equity in a in a startup that turned out to be life changing money for her. And so I said, you know, I've got to get her on the podcast and have her share, you know, some of those gems. So I, that's why I sort of paused you in, in telling that story initially, because I want to kind of focus our conversation there a little bit. But my question in all of that is in that journal article, you mentioned that you were up for a role with Lululemon, as you alluded to back in 2009, and you decided ahead of time that it made more sense to focus as much of the conversation as possible on how much equity you'd be uh, receiving rather than how much salary you could get them to agree to. Why was mm -hmm. that? Why was that the focus of your conversation? Because there's no cap to the upside of how well your equity portion of your compensation can do if the company does well. I can't stress enough that adding maybe 10,000, 20,000, even 30,000 to your base salary is not going to change your life. But adding 10,000 stock options to your original stock op option grant definitely has the ability to set you free financially. So there's no cap uh, on how much equity can become worth. So you want to get as much, I wanted to get as much of it as I could. I was originally offered 10,000 options and I countered with 40,000. Hmm. Uh, I did not get 40,000, but I did get 20,000. I did double yeah. what I was offered. And I thought it was reckless of me to negotiate so hard yeah. as well, because the reality is it was the financial recession and I was one mortgage payment away from losing my home. Um, I'd been out of a job. I'd just been doing my MBA. I was $100,000 in debt and couldn't make my mortgage. And here I am negotiating for quadruple the options or I'm not coming. Yeah. But yeah. it felt reckless. But th the offers don't get ripped away just because you're bold. They actually just don't. That's that's the part that I always try and focus people in on. I have, as you can imagine, a number of clients who get paid in equity and they work in tech and they're constantly trying to push the envelope, you know, the comp conversation and such. And the thing that I always try and focus people's attention on is if they really want you, they're not going to suddenly say, we don't want you anymore because you asked for an extra 5,000 shares or whatever, right? If I really want to hire you, the worst thing I'm going to say is my last offer was my best offer. And then, you know, and you move on, right? But like being afraid to ask for uh, fear of upsetting you know, the hiring manager or whoever that you're you're negotiating with. If if you think about it for a second on its face, the company who would decide they don't want you anymore because you chose to negotiate your comp is probably not a company you want to be working for anyway. Right. So if you just think about it in those logical terms, it should kind of help you get over that uh, that negotiation hump. But uh, I, I, you know, I, I'm a little bit biased in, in saying that I, I am a person who uh you know, likes to negotiate everything. So I'm a little bit uh, uh, biased in saying that. But I believe I read also that you attribute your ability to even get into venture at all uh, to your experience as an exec at Lulu and the equity that you uh, had there at one point that eventually grew to seven figures. You mentioned the number of shares uh, and sort of set you on a whole new set your life on a whole new course. And I think that's what you were kind of alluding to. Well, yeah, because then with that windfall, I then went hunting around for startup investments on my own. Mm -hmm. And this was about 2012, 2013. And I got into a company called Native Shoes, which was bankrupt back then, but now is the number one selling kid shoe 
on Zappos. You can't move here in New York in the summertime from Tribeca to Harlem without Mm -hmm. hitting a little kid wearing native shoes. And so I had some credibility as an angel investor in a brand that people knew by the time I went to raise the fund. So I'd had a bit of a track record investing. So one thing led to another there, right? The the windfall that I got from Lululemon, I reinvested it right away Mm -hmm. in different things, real estate, startup retail. And it, when I look back, you know, a 30 minute negotiation truly can change your life. And now I'm free to do work that's meaningful for me, um, which is class rebel. And um, it, I can trace it all back to, you know, a 30 minute conversation I had in 2009. I think one of the things, though, that that doesn't necessarily stand out in the conversation we're having, you mentioned the fact that like you were uh, hundreds of thousands or one hundred thousand dollars in debt beyond behind uh, uh, grad school. Right. You had an issue with your mortgage. You're behind on on uh, paying your mortgage, that sort of thing. But you still decided to take a risk or at least a perceived risk at the time and negotiate a little more aggressively to uh, position yourself on more solid financial footing. If your thesis proved out Lulu was the right place to be, you hit it right at the right time, those kind of things. I think it's important to also point out from what I'm hearing you talk about is being willing to take some risk being having a healthy appetite toward risk, especially when you're earlier on in your career and have plenty of time to recover, uh, because that also uh, is the other component of owning equity or having shares in in companies and those sorts of things that uh, has to be a companion piece to that that conversation. Right. Yeah. and, And risk is a whole nother conversation. I do think you have to have an appetite for risk to put yourself in a new financial position in life. And if the most risk you ever take is asking for a higher offer, um, <laughs> on the whole scale of risk, that's you're not risking your capital. You're just having a risky conversation mm-hmm. that can change your life. It, there's not that much risk involved in asking for more. People perceive that there is, but I think we're on the same page that there actually isn't a lot of risk in negotiating a higher offer. But I left. I I took risk leaving my law career. You know, and then I took risk leaving Lululemon. Some of the risk taking has paid off mm-hmm. and some has not. Uh, and, you know, we'll find out how it goes, you know, further with Class Rebel because that's risk taking as well. Um, but I do think you've got to take some risks to put yourself in a different position in life um, financially. And that is what I believe. True. Yeah. Yeah. Interestingly, to to your earlier point about, you know, how a few thousand dollars is not going to, you know, be life changing money in the grand scheme of, you know, over the arc of your entire working career, your whole uh, entire life. I actually wrote a blog post uh, about this last year titled uh, Time to Negotiate Your Next Pay Increase as for stock instead of more cash. And I think what you're saying aligns with the basic premise I was trying to get across when I wrote that, which was if you're lucky, there comes this point income wise where you're where an additional dollar coming into the house has a diminishing rate of return, right? For a number of reasons, the IRS is going to take a bigger portion. If you end up in a higher tax bracket, you may not want or need to go buy a bigger home or a nicer car, right? You can already comfortably afford to do all of the travel and leisure type activities that you enjoy currently you're already maxing out your retirement savings your kids already go to the best private schools that money can buy etc etc you get where i'm going but if you were to receive those dollars in the form of equity 
and you held on to them for, you know, I don't know, a decade or so, as, the, as is the case with uh, someone st- working at a startup like a Lululemon, those shares have way more value for you and can even become a game changer on your way to building that that life changing wealth that you're talking about for yourself and for your family. So uh, I guess, again, you know, long build up. But I'm curious if in that negotiation with the CFO of Lululemon, whether you think you were able to draw more out of him from an actual dollars and cents perspective, because you were asking for stock rather than cash. Absolutely. Of course, when I look back at the math, it was the equity that put me in a place of financial freedom. It was the negotiation I did in 20. 20- Uh, 2009 for 20,000 stock options. That's the piece that put me in a financial position to start a fund, to start Class Rebel, not have to work. It wasn't the salary or even the bonus portion of that equity comp package that put me into the position to be free, to Mm. build new things, try new things, fail at them. It 1,000% was the equity that allowed me to um, invest and then put myself to reinvest and then put myself in a position where I can build class rebel and I, I can do it without getting paid. Yeah. That that's another working theory that I have that some companies are much more willing to part with additional shares of stock than they are a few more dollars because, you know, dollars go against a different P and L than simply pulling additional shares out of the employee equity pool. And so, you Mm -hmm. know, by asking for shares, you might be able to end up with say $10,000 worth of shares where they may have only been willing to give you an extra $5,000 in salary, as an example, right? I I, I agree with that theory. And when you think about, you know, negotiation of compensation, everyone's fighting for the dollar because that's what people know how to fight for. But Mm -hmm. not many people are putting the gas down and really trying to quadruple, you know, their, their equity offer, double it, triple it, whatever it is. So, you don't have a lot of competition going after that stock option plan truly because in my experience, not a lot of people understand what it is, how valuable it could be and how to talk about it and position yourself in a negotiation. Well, to that end though, I read that through class rebel, you plan to launch a class soon about negotiating equity comp. Can you share a little bit about what you have in mind for that one? Yeah, it's our next one up. In fact, I saw a Wall Street Journal article that prompted me um, to think about this course, and it was by J.J. McCorvey, and it was about Mm -hmm. how black and Latino um, workers in tech get less equity grants. Hmm. And no doubt there's bias, but in my experience at Lululemon, what I also saw was that no one really understood the stock option mechanics and how to even have the conversation and what they could be worth. And so... What we're going to do is we're going to create a course. It'll have cameo instructors. I'll be the lead on it. Um, Mm -hmm. And we'll we'll step through stock option mechanics. How do they work? Um, What parts of the grant are negotiable? What are not what is not negotiable? What's a strike price? What's uh, so that's the stock option plans. But also um, what are restricted stock units? What what's an RSU plan? Uh, That could be part of your comp. What's an employee share purchase plan, right? At Lululemon for every two uh, shares that I bought, uh, Lululemon would purchase me one. So Hmm. Lululemon had stock options, RSUs, and employee share purchase plans, and I took advantage of all of them because I understood them. Um, So we'll cover all three of those types of plans. Um, We'll talk about negotiation strategies, which Felice Klein 
from Boise State has a real point of view on. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll do some mock negotiations and we'll have some cameo instructors that were in that Wall Street Journal article. Felice Klein from Boise State, Professor uh, Wadness Castelli, who was a Spotify employee. Uh, we'll have some Google employees, which are a big Class Rebel customer, actually. Yeah. And I think we can create something amazing. And And I don't think that the companies will ever create this education themselves because I don't think they're very incented to, of course. So we'll do it. And I think coming from an arm's length party like us, it will be well, well received. Well, I imagine, or I should say, I hope one of the cornerstones of this course will also be to teach people to understand and respect the the forfeiture value of their shares, right? Since you shared a story uh, in the, the journal article of a former colleague at Lululemon who almost walked out of the door as she had an options exercise coming up and didn't even realize it. Yeah, that was common. Yeah. I, um, that. Imagine walking away from $300,000 and someone from the company calling you three months later and saying, hey, your 90-day ex- exercise period is up. Did you have any idea that you had three or $400,000? That's life-changing for so many people. That's a house down payment, you know, or that's I, maybe I, a whole house, depending on where you live. <laughs> I couldn't imagine, but I, I also can imagine because through the financial planning that we do with clients who have equity compensation, one of the first things we've point out to them is exactly that. Like, here's how much you stand to lose if you were to decide today is the day and you're just going to walk out the door. Um, and I can't tell you how often people look at that and go, wow, I didn't even realize. So I, I can't imagine personally being in that position and losing out on that, but I can't imagine how it actually happens simply because I, I see people who like the light bulb goes off and they go, oh, shoot, I'm telling you, I'm planning on accepting this offer that I have from XYZ company. And you just pointed out to me that I need to wait another nine months because I have $300,000 still on the table um, that I I wasn't even focused on. Uh, And, and, you know, in, in that same vein, in that article, you said that simply not knowing is one of the key factors that you attribute to the gender wage gap in equity and period. Right. But why do you think that is presumably men and women have access to the same information, whether it's in the equity agreements they've signed or the plan documents, uh, you know, or the company's public filings, even what keeps women from being in the know so much? Well, I actually think that lack of knowledge runs equally amongst the genders that that's Mm -hmm. what I've um, experienced. But I think the initial offers out of the gate for equity comp, if the research says they're discrepant, I believe it for the same reasons that you know, wage compensation offers are different out of the gate. I think there's an inherent bias on compensation generally between men and women. I also think, you know, and I said, I said this to JJ at the Wall Street Journal, it didn't get printed, though. So I'm going to say it again. (laughs) I think women are socialized to be agreeable. And it's not Mm -hmm, very mm -hmm. agreeable to scrap about money. It's not a good look for us. So that's part, I think, why we women don't negotiate as much is because we're socialized to be agreeable and pushing back about money is not that agreeable looking. That's part of it. I also think there is a risk appetite that could be different generally between men and women, and it feels riskier to push back for more um, compensation because it's not very agreeable. I think those that gender socialization is playing a part of it in terms of negotiation. But if you told me the initial offers were discrepant between men and women, I would I would believe that. Sure. We've certainly seen it in in regular wage compensation. Yeah, I well, I appreciate you catching that and running with it as as 
fluidly as you did. I was sort of playing devil's advocate there. And one of the things that I was thinking about uh, was the fact that like, if I am the hiring manager and I have to look at uh, the budget of all of the hires that I am tasked with making, and I have, you know, X amount of dollars that I can spread across these five roles I have to hire. uh, If I am a devious minded person in the least bit, I can look at the two women's names on out of those five that I'm about to make offers to and just naturally assume that I can offer them a little less and they're going to take it, which then means that I can offer those guys a little bit more to get them to come because I know inherently that they are going to push back and negotiate with me a little bit on on what I'm offering. So I think you where you were talking about uh, being socialized to be agreeable, I think you perfectly uh, articulated the the reason that that happens and how it gets taken advantage of time and time again uh, from folks making those offers. And I wouldn't even I wouldn't even pin it back to a devious mind. I would pin it back to someone that's business minded. If you're managing mm-hmm. a budget, that type of thinking isn't so far from reality, right? If you're managing money, that is how you're thinking. And I think it reflects reality today. So it's not just devious minds that will go there. I think it's most minds that have been in business for a while. Well, something else I was thinking about while you were while you were talking about uh the course that you guys are creating, the journal article also placed some of the onus of the the gap on employers and said that encouraging women to learn the ropes and lean into negotiations won't solve the problem on its own. Do you agree that, you know, there are steps employers can take to help make things more equitable? I believe that compensation, whether it's wage based or equity based, will not reach perfect parity Mm-hmm. until there's legislation in place to enforce it. That's what I believe. I don't think em- employers are their businesses and they're accountable to their shareholders and they're set up to make profit. So they make profit where they can um, until they're forced to by legislation. I think we'll always see a wage gap and an equity based compensation gap. I don't think businesses are motivated to solve this problem. Yeah. Well, I mean, In my time advising executives on their finances, I've noticed that the higher a person goes up the ladder in a big corporation, the more flexible the rules tend to be with regard to compensation. Right. This person gets that thing because they either knew to ask for it or received good advice from a mentor or peer or whatever. Do you believe that this is a situation where things should be more regimented and scripted so that negotiation isn't even necessary? I think it's harder to yeah, to put lines around it, maybe at the highest levels uh, yeah. of, of these roles in businesses. But I will say, you know, uh, for those of you making your way up in your career, I would say the highest level person you can talk to, the mm-hmm. more flexibility you will have to negotiate. So I was present to negotiate directly with the CFO of Lululemon and not have mm-hmm. a hiring manager come between us. Because if they did, I was afraid that I would be boxed into whatever comp box, I guess I would normally go to, but I really distinctly felt that because I had managed to climb my way all the way to the, essentially the top of the business and, and negotiate directly that, mm-hmm. that, that type of person, that C-suite role, he had the flexibility and power to yeah. grant me what I wanted. So I think at, no matter what rank you're coming in at, try to try to get around hiring managers and talk to C-suite executives who are going to be responsible for you, negotiate directly with them. I would try that as well. 
I tell you what. The last thing. Yeah, can I add ahead. one more thing? Because sure. um, Felice Klein from Boise State agreed with me on this one piece, you know, coming into the Lululemon role and negotiating for equity. It was 2009. It was the financial crisis. I, I, I got a job, but I'm telling you barely. And I almost lost my house. I finagled one other job offer in an industry that was also pretty dead, which was investment banking. Mm-hmm. And I was able to play the investment banking role off of the Lululemon. I, I played them against each other to improve offers. And I think anyone mm-hmm. who's getting a tech job with Google could probably wrestle up an offer from also Facebook or Netflix. And so to the extent that you can have two offers at the same time and play them off to increase your comp, that mm-hmm. that works. It worked for me specifically. And when I shared that with Felice, the researcher from Boise State, she her findings her research has proven that to be true. So that is another important piece is competing offers. Yeah. And thank you for, for adding in that last little nugget. This, this conversation has been great. I appreciate you being so generous with your time. Um, but where can people find you if they want to learn more about you and or class rebel, uh, after this goes live? Yeah. Check us out at classrebel.com. Uh, you can see the courses that are live. You can see the schedule there. We're going to be collecting uh, emails for those of you out there who want to know when our negotiating for equity comp course goes live. Um, that will probably be in the spring of uh, early uh, 2022. Um, so check us out at classrebel.com. Awesome. And before I turn it over to Eric to close us out, a quick programming note. This is one of the final episodes of season one. Uh, however, we want you to stay tuned to the Tech Money podcast channel in your feed because we do have some bonus content that we'll be sharing uh, with you very soon. I am super excited about that. Another project that I'm uh, working on currently, but I don't want to ruin the surprise. So I'll just stop there with that little teaser. And uh, with that, Eric, go ahead and close us out, sir. All right. This has been fantastic. Brooke, thank you so much for your time today. Um, As a father of a 22-year-old daughter, I love what you're doing, uh, and I think it's incredibly important. So thank you so much for doing that and being on the show. Malcolm, of course, thank you for bringing on the show for all of us in the audience. And of course, our last thank you goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Tech Money Podcast with Malcolm Etheridge. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Malcolm comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. We humbly ask you to share this podcast and leave a review because this will help others find the show and get this great information. You can connect with Malcolm on social at Malcolm on Money. We'd love to hear from you and any questions you have, uh, Malcolm would be happy to answer them. And you can do this by emailing him at podcast at MalcolmEtheridge.com. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at Tech Money, our hope is that this show helped make you just a little smarter about your money. This has been the Tech Money Podcast. For more information on today's topic, to review the show notes, or to catch up on past episodes, be sure to check out malcolmetheridge.com slash podcast. And if you have an idea for a show topic that you'd like us to cover, or you want to send us feedback, the web address again is malcolmetheridge.com. You can also find Malcolm across all social media platforms at Malcolm on Money. This episode was written and created by Malcolm Etheridge with the production, the editing and sound controls powered by Proudmouth. This has been a Malcolm on Money original. Thank you for listening. 
The information shared in this recording and by its guests represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not represent the views or opinions of the host. This content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. This content is not, nor is it intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. It is always recommended that you seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your personal financial situation. This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. Our team of certified public accountants and enrolled agents is well-versed in the latest tax laws, ensuring that you capitalize on every opportunity for strategic tax optimization. We anticipate changes and keep you up to date on opportunities to potentially reduce your tax bill in the future. With a focus on precision and strategic planning, we are your trusted partner both during tax season and throughout the year. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com.